why is God so restrictive about sex? Have you ever uh, thought about that? Have you ever wondered that? Why can't God just be like, have fun, be respectful? You know, why does he have all these rules and regulations? There's a lot of topics in the Bible, in Christianity, that God's highly restrictive about. There's many things he takes a hard line on. Uh, but young people in the church almost always ask the same thing. They always mention the seemingly impossible standards around sexuality. Friends of mine outside of the church, they often bring up, like, why does Christianity have such strict, restrictive values around sexuality? They, these friends of mine almost always point to Christianity's uh, strict views about sex as, at best, a topic of scorn or mockery, something to make fun of, or at worst, the reason or the source or the root of most of our societal bigotry. Now, from a biological perspective, you have the capacity to have many sexual partners, unlike beavers, who mate for life, or gray wolves, who mate for life, or macaroni penguins. You know why he mates for life? He was lucky to get a mate the first time. Look at that hair. He looks crazy. Unlike those animals, our instinct is not to mate for life. So why would God demand something so restrictive, so against our nature as human beings? And the way you answer that question is going to reveal a lot about what you think about God. Now, I grew up with a really simple but unsatisfactory answer to that question. The churches I grew up in with, that I grew up in, um, when I asked, why were God's commands about sexuality so restrictive? Here's what they would say. Because he said so. And I was like, okay, you know, well, that settles it, right? Now, did any of you ever have a parent who would tell you to do something? And you're like, why? And they're like, because I said so. Just do it. Yeah. I had, I had a parent like that. Um, that was not satisfactory to me. In fact, when someone would tell me, because I said so, I'd be like, I'm going to disobey just to find out why it's so important. If they won't tell me ahead of time, maybe if I do what's wrong, I'll find out why it's so, why they, uh, what their real reasoning was. For many churches, for many years, have pushed the because he said so as the reason for God's tight restrictions around sex. Is that all there is? Is that the reason, though? According to Christian tradition, God invented sex. This wasn't something like, he's like, Adam and Eve, what are you doing? No, no. Like, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't an accident that human beings discovered about themselves after creation. It's a feature of his design for humans, not a bug. God isn't a cosmic prude. The Christian vision of sex is that it is good, but not ultimate. It is good, but not necessary. It is good, but it is not God. Church tradition holds that God commands things for our good. Why does he command things? Not to control us for our good. His commands aren't haphazard attempts to control every part of your life. He's not just trying to shut down your fun. He claims to know the best, best path for our lives, and he shares it with us. And this is part of what set the God of the ancient Jews apart. Most people saw the whim of the gods as completely unknowable. And so people in ancient times, they'd be like, I don't know what the gods want. Like one day I walked on the left-hand side of the road and it made the gods mad and my day went really bad. I just guess maybe they want me to walk on this side of the road this day and maybe the next side, the next day. Everything was unknowable chaos. You were never sure what the gods wanted or what you had done to annoy them. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, clearly told the Israelites what to do 
and what to avoid. And notice why he gave such clear commands in Deuteronomy 10.13. This is what it says. Keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Why did Israel, why did God give Israel 613 commands? Because he really wanted to control them. Because he's a controlling freak, right? No. He did that for their good. It was the best thing for them. It was the way to an abundant life. God doesn't command things to control us. He commands things to funnel us towards joy. They're signposts to get us to where we all want to go. They are signposts. They are guides to keep us away from the things that rob our lives of peace. And Jesus seems to agree with this thinking. In Mark chapter 2, he's arguing with the religious leaders about the Sabbath. This weekly command to stop and rest, to stop working and enjoy all that God has done when we're not working. In Mark 2, 28, this is what he says to the religious leaders. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, this is important. You say, well, why? Why is that important? This is key, though, because people were not created according to Jesus in order to fulfill commands. Commands were created so that people could find fulfillment. Remember the age-old question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And people debate this all the time, like, was it first the chicken and then it laid an egg? Was it an egg and it became a chicken? Jesus tells us that God didn't have a bunch of tasks, and he was like, man, I really need people to do this stuff. I'm going to create humans to do it. No, rather he created humans and then commanded things to guide those people to the best possible outcome for themselves. God commands things for us, not to control us. And this is absolutely key if we're going to understand the God of the Bible. He didn't make humans to be slaves, to, but to be co-rulers, representatives of his goodness and life, overseeing the flourishing of this world. In this viewpoint, commands are instructions to guide us towards our, to guide us and our planet toward ultimate abundance. This is how we have to look at commands from God, especially commands that we don't like or that we find brush against, up against some of our cultural sensibilities. So with all the restrictive commands in the Bible, why does our culture get so hung up on the commands about sexuality? God's restrictive about a bunch of other stuff that doesn't seem as hot button as his commands about sexuality. Why is that? I think our current culture has elevated sexuality to the chief pursuit of mankind the highest good and the ultimate source for happiness. And there's all kinds of indicators that this is how Western civilization sees life. It's the philosophy at the root behind nearly every hot-button cultural issue that you see in our society. We live in a cultural moment that wants to abandon the sexual ethics of historic Christianity as outdated, controlling, and restrictive. But... In doing that, we have the potential to toss aside our peace and joy also because God just didn't command these things on a whim. He commanded them for our good. Now, that also, though, doesn't mean that the church has always come down on the right side of topics or issues around sexuality. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that the church has always come to the right conclusions about these things. Um, but it does mean we need to think carefully before we change historic positions on matters of sexuality Because it's not like God was just throwing darts at a dartboard and he's like, yep, that's gonna be sin That's gonna be not sin. That's gonna be sin. That's gonna be not sin. Like he was very carefully Chose things that he thinks gonna lead us to the most abundant life possible 
He's guiding us towards peace and joy, so we want to pay attention. If we get this wrong, we're not so much in danger of God's wrath. We're in danger of tossing aside our peace and joy that God wants us to enjoy. And the restrictive sexual ethics of historical, historic Christianity are not that different of uh, practicing Muslims or Orthodox Jews. There are over 2 billion Muslims in the world. I have a Muslim friend down the street here, and uh, he's in his 30s, and he told me, he's like, I've never seen a naked woman because I'm trying to follow the customs of my religion and wait till I'm married to practice sexuality because that's what my faith teaches. It's not a culturally popular view, but he's trying to follow this. And there's two billion Muslims on the planet who follow very similar practices. Two million Orthodox Jews that have similar beliefs. And nearly two billion Christians that hold to historic views about sexuality. That's over half the human population that at least in theory holds to an idea that allegiance to a deity means that sexuality should have limits. And the restrictive commands about sexuality in the Christian faith has been a historical distinctive of Christianity since its inception. This isn't something new. The epistle to Diogenes is an early example of Christian apologetics. Scholars believe it was written around 130 AD. It's fascinating. It's online if you want to go read it. We have copies that have been translated into English. Although the author is unknown, he just refers to himself as the disciple. He says that he is writing to Diogenes which most scholars believe is Diogenes, the tutor of Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Anybody a Gladiator fan? One person? Okay. Man, it's a great movie. What's wrong with you people? It's great. Um, anyways, there's a great line in there. You know, when uh, the Gladiator, he's like, you knew Marcus Aurelius. Like, Diogenes knew Marcus Aurelius. Only the one person who's seen Gladiator gets it, but, you know, it was worth it, Maybe. He lists a number of peculiar quirks about the Christian communities. He says, hey, these Christians are popping up all over the empire. I'm going to tell you about them and what makes them different. Here's one of the things he says in this letter. Christians share their food, but not their wives. He says one of the things that's weird about them is anybody can come in and they're sharing their meals with people. That's weird. And they don't let you sleep with their wives. That's weird. That was weird to the Roman culture. It was something that set them apart. Our restrictions around sexuality are part of what makes culture curious about our message. It made Diogenes curious about Christianity. The early church didn't exist in a sexually conservative culture. It's not like society has been steadily getting sexually more progressive, like we have ups and downs and backs and forths. In Roman culture, it was an extremely sexually... Um, promiscuous culture. Males were allowed to sleep around as much as they liked as long as their mistress was unmarried, or they could sleep around with a boy as long as he was over a certain age. Brothels and prostitutes and dancing girls were all fair game, as were older males. Emperor Claudius's wife, Valeria Messalina, she was so sexually promiscuous, she set up a competition with a famous prostitute in Rome to see who could have more lovers before they exhausted themselves. And this would be like the president of the United States, the first lady saying, I'm going to have a competition with a prostitute to see who can sleep with more people, and the whole empire is going to watch and cheer on and see who wins. You think our culture is bad? It's nothing compared to Rome. The empress actually beat the prostitute 
after a day and a night and 25 lovers. So when people tell me that our culture is sex-saturated and that the New Testament authors don't understand, I want to gently remind them that historical Rome has us beat. Like, if you think America is sexually perverse, Rome was a whole new ballgame. Rome's like, hold my beer, America. I'm much, much worse. When the New Testament authors presented a traditional Jewish view of sexuality on the Gentile house churches in the Roman Empire, they were presenting a radically countercultural view of sexuality. These highly restrictive views of sexuality are no longer in vogue in our culture, but we need to recognize that they weren't in style 2,000 years ago when they were first written either. The sexual restrictions of the Bible have been under new scrutiny since the 1960s in America. That's when the sexual revolution happened in the United States. America was founded on this concept of freedom. You can see it everywhere in everything we do and say and touch. But increasingly, people began to see restrictive views that religion introduced about sex as anti-freedom. Here's how one historian described the sexual awakening of the 1960s. Sex became more widely discussed in society. Erotic media, such as films, magazines, and books, became more popular, gained widespread attention throughout the country. And these changes uh, revealed that sex was entering the public domain. It was entering casual conversation, and sex rates began to rise, especially among young people. Fast forward 60 years, and you have what our culture has become today. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, asked this question of the sexual liberation that formed our culture today. And I want you to think about this question. Amid the revolution, the question nobody seems to be asking was, is this making us better people? Is this making us more loving people or even happier people? Are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to our liberation? Sometimes... I have friends, and they're like, man, this needs to happen. We need to change. We need to do this and this. And I'm like, is this going to make us better people? Is this going to actually give us what we want? Is this going to actually bring us peace and joy? If God commands things for our good, is escaping his commands really freedom? Or is it just a whole new level of slavery? Somewhere along the way, we've redefined freedom to mean anarchy. You know what the difference between freedom and anarchy is? Freedom means you have the capacity to do something. Anarchy means you are the only authority that you will listen to. There is no higher authority than myself. Under this definition, anything that tries to control me is to be fought and opposed and decried as evil. Here's John Mark Comer again from his book. Self is the new God in our culture, the new spiritual authority, the new morality, and this puts a crushing weight on ourselves one that we were never designed to bear. We must discover ourselves. We must become ourselves. We must stay true to ourselves. We must justify ourselves. We must make ourselves happy. We must perform and defend our fragile identity. America has the highest rates of anxiety and depression in the recorded history of humanity. Over 40 million people in the U.S. have an anxiety disorder, could it be that culturally abandoning the guidelines of God's commands didn't bring us freedom, but instead left us untethered and drifting directionless with despair? So, all that being said, let me ask you a question. Here's the question before us. 
Do you have a God that can tell you no? Do you worship a God that can disagree with you? Do you worship a God that can take a position that you don't like? Is there anything that you want to do, but you don't because you trust he knows better than your desires? Is there anything you want to support just to go with the flow, but you don't because God said otherwise? If not, if there isn't anything, you might just be serving yourself and calling it God. You might just be practicing anarchy and not freedom. With the rise of the sexual revolution, both the church and culture reprioritized their primary messages. Although they came to very opposite conclusions about things, they both worked out from the same basic philosophical framework. Um, culture says that sexual fulfillment is the highest calling you can hope for in this world. This idea has so permeated our cultural psyche that people go from one night stand to one night stand, hoping to find the meaning that sex was never intended to provide. But our modern churches have also accepted this cultural assumption that sex is the primary drive of humanity, but they counter by saying the highest calling of life is found in marriage and parenting. I grew up in evangelical churches that constantly told me the highest calling of life was marriage and parenting. Jesus says the most fulfilling moments of life don't have anything to do with sex. Culture says sex is the highest calling. Church says marriage and parenting is the highest calling. And Jesus says, my life is the highest calling. And I was unmarried and celibate. As someone who didn't marry until his 30s, I heard a lot of messages in churches that bluntly stated or subtly hinted at that I didn't have a place in the church until I was married and had some kids. The churches in North America in general have been designed around having programs for families. Once in a leadership meeting where I was the associate pastor, I raised this objection that the primary focus of the entire church and budget revolved around families, which left widows in the church and single people feeling unwanted or at best out of place. When I said that, you would have thought that I just proposed that we threw out the Bible and start using the Betty, Betty Crocker cookbook as our new guide for life. They were like, what are you saying? This is horrible. This is outlandish. This is crazy. For years in church, I heard that a man's highest calling was to be a husband and a father, and a woman's highest calling was to be a wife and a mother. If that's true, then Jesus failed his highest calling because he was not a husband and he was not a father. Over and over, I had young people asking me, I'm unmarried. Am I failing God's high standard for my life? We tried to have kids and we can't. Am I failing God's high calling for my life? Everyone's high calling, everyone's, is to live and love like Jesus. That's your high calling. Jesus didn't marry. He didn't have sex. When we make sexual fulfillment the highest calling of life, we're simply buying the philosophical framework of the culture. When we make marriage or parenting the highest calling of life, we're still buying the philosophical framework of the culture, although with a spiritual caveat. Every human being needs intimacy. Humans need intimacy. But every human being does not need sex. Intimacy can be expressed through sex, but it is not the only place you find it. If sex is the only place you ever look for intimacy, you will be empty inside and out. And I have friends and family members and peers who are empty, desperately empty, because the only place they're looking for intimacy in life is in sex. And they go from person to person to person, and they end up emptier and emptier and emptier. 
Intimacy can be expressed in marriage, but marriage cannot fully fulfill the emotional need you have for intimacy to be known and loved. It will crush a spouse if you put all that weight on them. In parenting, you can find intimacy, but if that's the only place you look for it, you will crush your children. Now, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a city known to be sexually perverse, even in the Roman Empire. With an empress who has a competition with a prostitute, Corinth was known as a as a sexually perverse place. Um, sea traders would stop in there just because they it was known to be such a sexually wowed place, which ended up making the city very prosperous because lots of trade went there. Um, the city boasted three temples to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex. Historians record that they employed over 1,000 temple prostitutes, both male and female, which were dedicated to having sex with worshipers in exchange for temple offerings. Can you imagine being a church in that city? And there's just one. You know, Paul just started one church there. It's not like they had friends and buddies. There's one church there, the church at Corinth. And this is what he wrote to the church in that city in 1 Corinthians 7. 7 through 8, and then we're going to read verses 26 through 28. I wish we could read the whole chapter, but for time we won't. Verses 7 through 8. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you have your own gift from God. Some have, <coughs> excuse me, some have this first one thing, and another has something different, but to the unmarried and the widows I say this, it's good for you to stay unmarried as I do. Verse 26. I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Now, I think the next time I do a wedding, I'm going to use this verse. Those who marry will have many troubles in life. Any married people out here just want to affirm that? It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. We need to talk more about this. Marriage is tough. Like, marriage can be beautiful, wonderful, and good, but it is not easy. I love Darby. She's an amazing woman. Amazing. But being married to her is the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I have never heard anyone ever preach on these verses in churches. You know why? It doesn't fit our philosophical framework, right? The highest calling is parenting and marriage. And if I talk about how hard it is, well, maybe some people won't get married. Paul says your highest calling is not to get married. He says it over and over again in this chapter. And you say, well, he's in a super sexually, uh, he's writing to a superly sexually perverse culture. Surely he wanted them to get married as like a, a barrier or a bastion against his culture. And no, what does he say? No, it's better for you not to get married. Because that's not the high calling of your life. The high calling of your life is to become like Jesus. Church isn't honest about how hard marriage is because church is preaching that marriage is the highest calling for a person. How are we going to sell it if we talk about it being hard? I think the divorce rate is so high, some studies have shown it's higher inside of churches than in culture, because the church isn't honest about marriage and is putting a weight on marriage it cannot bear. That is, that it is the most fulfilling thing in your life. And when people find that's not true, they leave and they try something easier. Discipleship, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did is the high calling for your life and for my life.
And you can do that whether you have kids or you don't, whether you're married or whether you're single, whether you have sex or you abstain. If being married is the highest calling, then why does Paul say his wish, his hope, his desire is for all of us to be like him, unmarried? Culture says sex will bring fulfillment. Church says marriage and parenting will bring fulfillment. But what if you never marry? What if you never have kids? Are you cursed never to be fulfilled? No. The highest calling of everyone is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Will you just say that with me for a minute? The highest calling of life is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. This is why Jesus said he had come in John 10.10, so that we might live abundant lives, so that we might live his abundant life, so that we might become apprentices of the abundant life that he lived. And he lived without sex, without marriage, without becoming a parent. And so as we close, I want to ask you an important question. What do you think will bring you fulfillment? What do you think is the high calling of your life? If you're like, man, if I got this, I would be fulfilled. I would be content. I would be happy. Maybe you think, man, it's sex or marriage or children. Maybe it's something completely different. Becoming students of how Jesus lived and loved is the high calling of every human being, and it is the only thing that will satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. God has incredibly restrictive commands about sex. I don't think this is because he's cruel or controlling. I think, it be, I think it's because he knows our tendency will be to look to sex to find fulfillment that it can never provide us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the writings of Paul. Thank you that you command things not because you're controlling, but because you're good and you want us to live good, full, abundant lives. Uh, forgive me for so often thinking I know better than you. God, help us to be wise and cautious as we examine both the, the positions of the church and the positions of culture, and we say, which one actually aligns with you? And in some cases, neither do. And we have to go back to what you said and what you taught and who you were and remind ourselves that the highest calling of life is to be 